Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hey listeners, we're back, bringing you what hopes to be another great episode of FF+. I'm Patch, and with me on the other end of the conversation is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I'm here! This week, we are bringing you a couple of new movie reviews, as well as our reaction to a couple of recent hot topics in the world of pop culture. So without any hesitation, let's see what's new in the world of movies. All right, I'll start us off with Hummingbird. This is a movie that gets its theatrical release a couple of days from now, depending on when you're listening to this. If you're actually listening to this the day it drops, it releases on March 22nd of this year in the theaters, and it centers around a pair of high-frequency traders that go up against their old boss in an effort to make millions in a fiber-optic cable deal. Now, that sounds like a nerd fest, if I've ever heard one. It stars Jesse Eisenberg, Alexander Skarsgård, and Selma Hayek. Okay, so hearing the synopsis, which the nerd in me is kind of like interested in, and then having those three actors on Slate, I was expecting for the social network on steroids. Like, this looks really intriguing. And for my money, it didn't quite hit all those notes. <laughs> it really felt, honestly, Aaron, like it was a warm-up for the social network. Like if, if Aaron Sorkin needed kind of a dry run of like, let's see what a kind of movie that could center around something that's quite boring and make it suspenseful would look like, this is the movie that I think would probably be in that category. I see Jesse Eisenberg, and I'm always going to see him as Mark Zuckerberg in any movie where he's not bald. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or not, because he's so great as Mark Zuckerberg. But I feel like it's Jesse Eisenberg being Mark Zuckerberg in this movie. You know, he's very eccentric. He's very driven. And he pretty much owns the room whenever he's talking. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not bad. It's kind of intriguing in some points, but I think the overall plot and narrative didn't quite work for me when I was when I was watching it. Uh, there's definitely lots of talking and I feel like it's it's a story that's trying to be more than it should be. Like to me this feels kind of like it should be a documentary or maybe something on the History Channel. I yeah. actually thought at one point these were true events that actually happened. Wait, they're and not? I don't think they are. Oh, I thought this was based on it may have been. I swear, it, it if somebody came up with this and they thought this was a good fiction, then yeah, we're we got problems. So I don't have that confirmation <laughs> in my head. If it's not, then consider my disappointment elevated. But uh, but yeah, I, I didn't really walk away from this one feeling great about it. Yeah, I didn't either. And I was pretty excited with the premise. I thought kind of. I thought I was hoping for more social network than Black Hat. Black Hat is a Michael Mann movie that centers around techni technological espionage, computer hacking with um, Chris, not oh, not Evans, not Pratt. Dad, give it. Who's the other one? Hemsworth. <laughs> Which Chris Thor. I was literally was going to say Thor with Chris Hemsworth as a hacker. And, you know, of course, right away you think, wow, yeah, never seen a hacker that looks like him. And it kind of dabbles in this same high dialogue, low action, techie kind of technobabble type wording that's going on. And this, this is interesting because it's a really, it's a really intriguing idea. And I thought it was real. I thought these people really tried to do this. They're trying, the hummingbird project is named after the speed that a hummingbird's wings flap at. They flap at 16 milliseconds per second or something like that. And so they're trying to achieve a 16 millisecond round trip travel time for information that goes from the st stock exchange in Wall Street directly to Kansas. The whole point of this heist, it's not really a heist, the whole point of this insider trading type thing that they're doing is to get a leg up on the competition. Mm -hmm. Because as it's explained in the film later, 
the matter of a millisecond creates the ability for them, their computer, to make a trade faster by that much, which will result in 5 to $10 more per stock, usually. Essentially, this is what's going on. And so when that starts to compound over time and over amounts of stocks, it becomes millions and millions and millions of dollars. So A, this is illegal. What they're doing is not okay. They are being, you know, can be sought by the FBI, can be, can be sent to prison for this. And yet, it's really a compelling idea, but it all boils down to figuring out math to make it faster while simultaneously struggling to acquire the right permits and the land to drill this tunnel directly between these two places because they have to go straight. That's the real challenge that they face in this movie is that this tunnel has to go directly from Wall Street to Kansas because otherwise, if it goes in like circles or, you know, loop-de-loops or, you know, curves, then the the signal's not going to ever reach that 16 millisecond. So that's their challenge. And so we get to see them dealing with, you know, Native Americans and Amish people and, you know, Holy Land and, and going through all these, you know, struggles of trying to acquire, going through mountains and, and that stuff. But it's not interesting at all for me. And I think that the di- it being so dialogue heavy, you're right. It's impossible not to see Mark Zuckerberg in this movie. And it makes you wonder if you're going to make a movie that's so dialogue heavy about a topic like this, it's got to have Sorkin level dialogue. And this just doesn't for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And to me, this feels like it should be a book itself. Like this feels like it works better when you're reading it because you're applying your own voices to these characters as a reader, which I think adds intrigue to that. And it does kind of feel a little suspenseful here and there. I think the performances are pretty fantastic. I think all three of these guys, uh, Eisenberg, Skarsgård, and Hayek, excel at their performances. And Skarsgård himself, I think, is probably my favorite. He is definitely out of his element in terms of other movies that he's done. Doesn't really show a recognizable face in this. In fact, I didn't even know it was Skarsgård until you mentioned it to me offline. I was like, I love that character. Because he's, he's bald, he's fatter, and he also doesn't speak with his accent. So yeah, he's, right. he's completely unrecognizable until you know it's him and then you kind of are like wow holy cow what a transformation you know he's going through here right so the chemistry between all three of them is fantastic it just doesn't live up to the kind of expectation that i think you and i would would both want from something like this yeah there's no urgency is what i felt like i felt like it was boring and then they throw they threw in a subplot about midway through the movie that it may be a real story. It may be part of the real story and challenges that they face that it has to do with one of the characters. It's a very personal thing. And I just, I don't know. I didn't buy it, man. I I mean, not that I didn't buy it. Once you find out what it is, you're going to think I'm an awful person for saying that. But it, I totally understood the, the idea of it and the possibility of this being a thing. But the whole subplot just felt out of place for me. And I think it was meant to help generate some of that urgency because this movie is about these men who are driven by a a legacy. One of them is the son of this incredibly successful person, and he's trying to live up to his father. And so they're trying to succeed for their own own good, as well as their own well-being financially, but it's really about like achieving this goal and this legacy. You know what I mean? Like pulling off the perfect heist for many robbers is a, as much about executing the perfect heist, like in Ocean's Eleven, as it is getting the money. It's about having your plan be smart enough that it actually works. Right. The the money and the, the end game is is sort of a MacGuffin yeah. for a lot of a lot of these movies. And I think that's one of the successes of the Hummingbird Project is that there are some organic growth points for the characters, um, Eisenberg as well as Skarsgard, that I think pay themselves off, but in particular Eisenberg's subplot doesn't do it for me either. I don't feel like it's completely connected to the overall narrative. When you have subplots, typically they bleed into the bigger narrative in a way that kind of elevates both at the same time. And this one, I felt like it was on its own little path and eventually came back to the main plot by the end of the movie only because it had to, not because it necessarily needed to or made sense to. Yep. I completely agree with you. And ultimately I didn't, 
hate watching this, but I would never really recommend going to see it in a theater. And I mean, I'm going to be straight up honest. As film critics, I feel like that's what we're here to do. I'm going to tell you, if you really enjoy watching something that is very slow, very dramatic with techno talk and a minimal amount of character compelling, you know, empathy being generated, then maybe it's worth your time. But I just can't see a lot of folks wanting to sit through this in a theater. Well, I sat through it twice because I couldn't quite grasp what was going on the first time around. This is one that you can't really check out, you know, halfway because you have notifications on your phone. And by the way, you shouldn't do that anyway when you're watching a movie. Please respect it. You know, watch the movie. But I wasn't really even doing that. I just had a trouble following it. There's a great lifeline that's thrown to our audience in the form of a conversation that Skarsgård character has with a, a bystander at some point in a diner that gives kind of some meaning to everything that's going on. There's that one moment in movies where you're like, oh, there's all this techno babble. Explain it to the rest of us. And there's usually some kind of character that plays that part for us. And I was really grateful for that because at that point I was like, okay, now I can enjoy the rest of the movie knowing this kind of stuff, you know. So that debuts uh, March 22nd in theaters, but I would agree with Aaron. This is probably something you can wait for when it hits video on demand whenever that happens. All right, next up is Screwball, and it's everything that the title says it is <laughs> in terms of being, well, it's almost like a screwball comedy to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a dual meaning for that title, and it definitely is applicable. There's a lot of duality going on in this movie, not only with the title, but with the production and the way the narrative plays out. Um, this is, this around, is it a ahead. movie or is it a documentary? Well, so I'm going to read the synopsis because I couldn't <laughs> okay. really figure it out. And it is Billy Corbin's true crime dramedy that investigates the okay. MLB's infamous doping scandal involving a nefarious clinician and his most famous client, the New York Yankees, Alex Rodriguez. I love synopses like that. Make me feel really important. <laughs> so imagine, imagine I, Tanya, only instead of Margot Robbie, it's actually Tanya Harding acting out the movie of her life. Okay, so I'm going to take that one step further and saying, imagine it's I, Tanya, only instead of Margot Robbie acting out the part of Tanya Harding, it's Tanya Harding narrating the story with a child version of her adult self acting out the parts yeah. this is this yeah. is where this is where the bonkers part just begins the very beginning of the movie i'm gonna call it a movie it's not a documentary that's fine this we'll go drama, with movie this this melrose place this whatever real housewives type feel starts off with a fast-paced interview dialogue or interview monologue of uh, not Tony Bosch, but I can't remember the other guy's name. Anyway, one of the one of the employees telling the story, intercutting with kids playing the parts of these adults and mouthing the interview dialogue. And so you're already kind of in this world of, OK, what's happening here? What's going on? And it cuts to a pivotal moment in the story and then. We basically go backwards, kind of like Quentin Tarantino. So we are given one moment in time, and then we go back years before to the beginning of when all this plays out. So with regards to what we're describing here, I want to try and help the listeners get a sense of this. And I think the best way to do that, the only thing I can compare this to that everybody probably has seen is Ant-Man. And everyone loves the portion where Luis is explaining what happened in the past, this conversation that he's had. Imagine Luis narrating the past, and you know how we cut to those cool, fun scenes of him, like, in a bar talking to someone, and you can very clearly see he's lip-syncing the reenactment? It's exactly like that, only kids made to look like they're older versions. And and when we say kids, we're talking, you know, this young Italian kid, or I'm sorry, not Italian, he's Cuban, a uh, Cuban-American kid who's looking like Tony Bosch with slicked back hair or um, spray tanned, or sometimes there's gangsters and they'll they'll be tatted up, the kids will, to make them look like the, the real life person. Baseball players, 
two of the best depictions in here that are really hilarious are Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez, two Absolutely. major players in this story, players in more ways than one. And their kids are hilarious looking. I mean, they are, they look like they could be toddler versions of the actual men. So it is bonkers and it totally puts you in a weird headspace, right? When you're going to watch this, you don't know whether to take it seriously or not. Um, at least I didn't. And you know, then it, then it goes on. And as Patrick said, the synopsis, we're talking about a real life doping scandal that went down and it has still not really kind of been resolved fully. Right. Yeah, I look at I look at a at a movie like this and I think that as I've thought through this, as I was taking my notes and kind of putting my thoughts together, I realized that this is a brilliant way to tell this story because of the fact that the main events that take place, some of these stories that are told by Tony Bosch and other people are just as ridiculous as the production value itself. And it makes perfect sense to reemphasize the fact that this couldn't have happened. This is ridiculous. As surprised as we were that the Hummingbird Project is not based on a true story, it's hard to believe that a movie this ridiculous is actually based on true events. Like I'm watching this, knowing that this these events happened, and thinking, no, no, that didn't really take place. No, you didn't have that conversation with him. Wait, are you serious? You actually made that deal with? Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? And these are the reactions I'm having as the movie goes on. I'm going, I can't believe that took place. And by the end of the movie, Aaron, I'm thinking, okay, what's real and what's not? But I think that's the point. I think that because of everything that took place during these you know, five or ten years with all this stuff going on, as an audience, as a public, we're thinking, how do we know what to believe? Is the MLB at fault? Is the FBI at fault? Is Tony Bosch at fault? I mean – who is actually the bad guy here or the bad guys here? Because the the movie really kind of plays with that by giving us these different perspectives. And I think using that kind of humorous approach helps us digest that a little bit more, but also helps reemphasize the fact that we may not know what to believe. And maybe that's the point because of the fact that there's so much stuff going on under the table. There were so many backroom meetings and deals that may or may not have been going on and at the heart of it was a rod and everything that that he was doing where he became the focal point along with tony bosch yeah i you know i don't know that i actually had that same response i i didn't take it as something where i was left more can more questioning i took it as almost being i thought it was making fun of tony bosch because of how serious he seemed to be taking and recounting his story. But by the end, I realized the dude basically got away with it, and he is just an incredibly egotistical person. For listeners that don't understand what we're talking about and the, the scandal of ped use, uh, performance-enhancing drugs in baseball, going back into the late 80s, I guess, early 90s, the home run races, the big home run splurge where suddenly players were huge and just hitting way more than they used to. This goes back to Tony Bosch, who is unable to actually get himself a medical license and doctors would sell their prescription pads to people for extra money, especially ones that had like retired. Yeah. Wow. Patrick's only wow. And I, I thought the same thing. Ridiculous. So, so someone like Tony Bosch, who ended up going to Mexico and getting this kind of certificate, I guess you could say, that qualifies him as a physician, could literally put on a white coat that said Dr. Bosch, wear a stethoscope, have this pad for prescriptions, and then sell people anti-aging drugs. <laughs> and and people would believe it was legit. Why would Why wouldn't you, right? And originally, he was just into this because it was making money. His dad had been a doctor and he kind of learned the anti-aging stuff from him, found out what this, the different you know, uses of anti-aging drugs were, and then realized there was this opportunity to use it in a way that would enhance athletic performance. And then he realized there's my opportunity to profit off of this. And before you know it, he's in business with Manny Ramirez and one of the biggest baseball players ever and at the time was you know trying to recover and 
come back to a high level of play and they get into this deal and it just takes off from there. And it goes into this crazy story. Like the names that he drops in this, Patrick, I was just, my jaw was on the ground. And I know that some folks, if they followed this, like diehard baseball fans may have read the actual reports and may know some of this information and the names. I didn't know all of them. Um, I, I knew that Alex had been, you know, found guilty of being part of this. But when you start to see what Alex supposedly, how Alex was supposedly involved, Alex Rodriguez, the fact that he wanted exclusivity and this special contract so that nobody else in baseball could have these steroids, it all kind of felt like it played into exactly what I believed of Alex Rodriguez already. You know what I mean? Um, so it was, it was fascinating and it was shocking. And it was sad. And at the same time, a big part of me wondered, you know, these people are responsible for their own bodies and the, and the effects of this. And almost why do I care what they do to their own bodies? Now, obviously, I want fairness in sports. But um, it was it was crazy, man. And and Bosch is so nuts. But at the same time, he's calling A-Rod nuts. He actually says about Alex Rodriguez, he says, if he wasn't a multi-millionaire, you'd call him crazy, but we call him an eccentric instead because, <laughs> because we, because he's so rich, because he's so famous. So we're just going to like give him a pass. So it, it was super interesting. It's actually grown on me since watching it. I really enjoyed watching it. I had a lot of fun. I think it does kind of peter out in the last third of it. I think you and I talked about this offline. It's really intense and engaging it's the production value is super fun they'll throw new new uh players and new people up on the screen in baseball cards to introduce them that was cool but then once bosch gets actually convicted or discovered as this ringleader of this ped you know underground ped clinic and it starts to deal with the aftermath and the trials then it got kind of boring for me yeah, and the thing is, is that the most morale-boosting moments came near the end, where we come to find out that more people, not just professional players, but high school players, were getting affected by this, and that was really what Bosch got busted for. Like his his jail time came not from the actual major league ball players, but from the high school stu- the high school athletes that he was giving drugs to, which really started expanding the message that I think the movie was trying to say, which is kids don't do drugs. You know, your body is, is better than that. You don't need that. And you shouldn't have to have that. Yeah. And I think, I don't remember who it was, but one of the guys in the, in the movie said, if my kid gets beat out of a position because the other guy is just better than him, he can deal with that. But when the other guy is pumping peds, that's completely unfair because it puts my kid at a disadvantage already. And there's no point in trying to compete with that. In fact, what it does is it would just encourage him even more to engage in that kind of exercise because now the playing field has not been leveled. It's now been completely imbalanced. And I, I like that message, but I felt like it was a little bit inconsistent with the rest of the tone of the movie. Like I was enjoying myself, which sounds really bad, but I was enjoying kind of, the off the ball screwball nature of the movie. And then we get into kind of a, the more, you know, moment, like the end of an eighties sitcom where you have the type of music that plays and like, Oh, here's the lesson learned. It's a good lesson, but one that I wasn't really interested in because of the way the movie was being presented to me. Well, this is one I actually do recommend. I wouldn't go see this in a theater either, but I would definitely recommend watching it on video on demand. And especially for anyone that has been a baseball fan for the last couple decades and has any knowledge or interest in the doping scandal and how things went down, they're going to find value entertainment wise in watching this. Yeah, I will say this, and this is somewhat of a spoiler, but whatever. I would love to have seen a kid, Mark McGuire and a kid, Sammy Sosa. Personally, I didn't get to see that. So out in the park on a t-ball stand, having a home run contest, that would, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, the kid actors were hilarious though. They really were. They really were. A-Rod and, and Manny were, were pretty much tops for me. And I know they were for you. So screwball gets its theatrical release on March 29th of this year. And then it goes to video on demand and digital April 5th. 
So whichever way you want to watch that, we recommend that you do. Moving on, we've got a couple of big topics that have made their way into pop culture news in the last several weeks that we wanted to conversate about a little bit. The first one is the new streaming service that's coming this year at some point, rumor has it, possibly, and that would be Disney+. Plus. Yes, the big giant is finally getting into the streaming game and what a game it has become with all this stuff. So if you guys have been sitting under a rock and you don't know much about this, this is essentially Disney's way of saying all of our stuff, for the most part, is going to be available to you, the subscriber, for a low monthly fee, and you will worship at the feet of us as a giant mega company. That's my interpretation of it. Aaron, do you have a different one? Well, I mean, we're projecting onto them as saying that. I mean, that's sure. what it feels like. What it feels like to me is business. And Disney has just finalized their acquisition of 20th Century Fox as well. So they are quickly getting larger and larger. Their length, the lengthy list of properties that they own now is amazing. With this deal, this is the first time that Marvel is finally getting back its characters. Uh, the X-Men specifically, uh, some others that had been over on Fox are going to come home. So that's intriguing to me. It allows Marvel to do some work with them. It crushes the idea of anything other than a pre, very controlled MCU style making of comic book films. Now, that doesn't mean that every film, every property they, they create an entertainment platform for is going to fall into the tone of an MCU movie. It just means that there's this one group that's responsible for it all. So you're not going to get a ton of unique, different perspectives anymore like we did with the X-Men for a while. Here's the thing. What we learned recently that kind of kicked off this conversation was that the vault is being done away with the much maligned Disney vault. And if you're not familiar with the Disney vault, the Disney vault is this system that they came up with where every few years movies would rotate in and out of this vault. And I'm putting it in air quotes. And what it was is anything in the vault wasn't available. So it would be taken out of the rotation for public access. You couldn't stream it. You couldn't buy it. And it would create demand, right, over the course of a decade or five years where the Lion King is out of the vault. So now the only way to go get the Lion King is the limited number of copies that were already in existence. There weren't more constantly being printed, which created this problem. People got really upset because they weren't able to find Disney movies. We all don't like the vault. I don't know anybody that likes the vault. So the vault is being done away with, and now Everything in theory, what they've said, is going to be on Disney+. Plus. In addition to that, here's some more facts about Disney+. Plus. This is Disney's streaming service that is supposed to rival Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, services like that. They're not going to have any R-rated content. That's what they've said. That's huge. Huge for families. Now, do other services have parental filters and things like that? Absolutely. But this won't require it because there's no R-rated content. It's 100% family-friendly from the start. They're going to pull back some of their shows that are on other platforms like Netflix, slowly going to take them away, Marvel specifically, Star Wars specifically, and put them on Disney Plus so that you can't get them somewhere else. The MCU is going to continue on Disney Plus, as is Star Wars. Both are going to have live-action series that are developed and only available through Disney Plus. There is going to be a live action movie that is exclusive to Disney Plus. They're doing The Lady and the Tramp. That's getting the live action treatment. It's going to have big name actors like Tessa Thompson and Justin Thoreau. But instead of getting a theatrical release, it's going to be released on Disney Plus. Disney has bought National Geographic, Patrick. So National Geographic programs are going to be available on Disney Plus. Heck, maybe that means that my movie Free Solo is going to be on Disney Plus. They are going to also do some series extensions of old favorites from the Disney Channel. Some things like High School Musical-based content. Uh, Monsters, Inc. have been mentioned. They're also talking about doing reboots, uh, TV movie-style reboots of things like The Mighty Ducks, uh, maybe The Parent Trap or The Muppets. It is going to be loaded with content. And I think 
what is so interesting is that Disney knows we all love them. Our dollar speaks for itself. When we vote at the box office, we vote Disney every single year. Disney has, I think we did, when we were doing the summer movie wager, I think we talked about this one year, how Disney owned the summer box office hall when we were, when we looked at what studios won the years. It was Disney, Disney, it's been Disney, 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 because they own Marvel, Star Wars, and all the animated stuff that's, and Pixar. So, if that's what people are spending their money on, if somebody who goes to the movie five or six times a year to the theater, and all they go see is Disney movies, and we know people like this, people like this that are our listeners in our Facebook group, we're not judging, we're just saying, that's your target audience. That person doesn't need Netflix. That person doesn't want indie content that is being, that they're going to not watch 90% of. They want their entire Disney library available at the drop of a thumb. And so I think it's brilliant. And our contributor from Every Movie Has a Lesson, Don Shanahan, has said this in our Facebook group numerous times. I think it comes down to price point, price point, price point. If Disney Plus can be affordable enough that people are either A, willing to buy it on top of all the other stuff they subscribe to, or just drop Netflix outright and buy it and can afford it, I think it's going to severely hurt Netflix, I think it might put Hulu out of business, honestly, and all the other services. So yeah, it is going to be game changing. So I will make a bold prediction and say it's not going to put Hulu out of business. One, they have a controlling stake in Hulu, so maybe financially they could push. Oh, (laughs) but well, yeah. But I will say this: if you were to level a playing field, Hulu is catering to a live television broadcast network programming group there are with the exception of cbs because that's the outlier but the fact is people have hulu not for original content they have hulu because they can essentially do their own version of dvring by watching television on demand in network television like nbc abc i guess the wb cw and so i don't think hulu is going to get it may be diminished in terms of its value, but I think the fact is it, like what Netflix has become, is a producer of unique content without the constraints that Disney is putting on their streaming service. So I'll be the pessimist here, and I'll say that in a way, Disney is not getting rid of the vault. They're just expanding it based on those people who choose not to invest that eight, ten, twelve dollars a month, either on top of their other subscriptions. Or whatever. My question is, if you're doing away with the Vault Disney, does that mean that if I decide I want to go purchase, let's say Aladdin is now, it was in the Vault and now because of the streaming service, it's available there. Does that mean I can go find it somewhere else? Does so that mean I can? They have not I, said. They so have not said anything about physical content. My guess I'm, is no. My guess no, is that it's not going to come out of the Vault. But I'm going to even say digital content. So if Aladdin is available on Disney Plus, does that mean it's not available anywhere else, like oh, on yeah. on Voodoo, absolutely, to purchase or anything like that? So really, we're not. I would assume so. So again, we are just changing the nature of what the Vault is. The Vault is now costing you eight to ten dollars a month, and that may not be a lot for a lot of people. It's definitely not for a guy like me if I want that. But I'm saying that for me to be able to have that kind of access whenever I want it. Now I've got to subscribe to something that maybe I'll, and and, and I admit this comes down to taste as I'm not a guy who's necessarily like, Oh, I want all my star Wars. I want all my Marvel. I want all my Disney. But for the guy that's not necessarily wanting all that, I'm still kind of out of the loop because now I have no other place to get those things, but from this one place, which is essentially a vault. So, Okay, so what I do know, they're doing away with the vault completely. So there is no vault, physical or digital, is what I've been reading. I cannot imagine this is going to apply to Voodoo. I, I misunderstood it when I was commenting just a second ago. If you buy a movie outright, getting a digital copy of that movie on Voodoo is something different. That is something you own. What they're doing is they're pulling it off of Netflix. So in the past, they've let Marvel movies go to Netflix. You can watch the Guardians of the Galaxy movies on Netflix right now. Right. Without owning them, 
because you're paying for that service. That's mm. the kind of content that is going to all be only available on this now. Okay. I can't so, imagine that they're going to do away with the, the fact that you could own your movie. If you bought it outright, you own it. But that's not, I mean, that's what we're saying is if the vault is going away, what is the vault? The vault is essentially movies that are inaccessible to purchase, right? Mm-hmm. Is that physically or digitally or both? That's both. So See, that, I don't think it means they're going to suddenly like put every single movie they have in existence into production. But it means they're not going to intentionally withhold and stop that. Sure. So what I'm saying is that if there was a movie currently right now, I'm going to use Aladdin again as an example, that's currently in the vault. And I'm putting air quotes around that. Can I go to a digital platform like Amazon Video or Vudu or Google Play or iTunes and purchase a digital copy of Aladdin right now? That's if a, it's you can't right now. No. So but what I'm saying is question. if the vault is going away, will I be able to do that then since the vault is going away? No, because you can't do that now, even with movies that are available on Disney to buy. Like, that's not how Disney movies work. So Disney doesn't distribute anywhere. Not to my knowledge. I mean, okay. I can buy some of their movies on Vudu, but I'm buying it outright. I'm not right streaming it. Wait, you're you're buying a physical copy or a digital copy? <laughs> I know we're deviating. Quite Either a bit. one, yeah. No, I'm I'm getting confused. So I can buy a digital or a physical copy of movies that are not in the vault right now. The vo- sure. All we know is that they've said the vault is going away completely. To me, that means, and there's no other information, so we're we're guessing here. But right. the, to me, that means that all their movies are going to be on Disney Plus digitally. What that means for physical is the question. Mm-hmm. We don't know, and that's right. where. I'm just taking it one step further and just saying the digital versions of those, if I choose never to buy a physical copy of any movie, Disney or otherwise, and I choose to buy outright a digital copy of a movie, if it's Disney and if it's considered in the vault, my question is, one, can I do it now? And No, because it's in the vault. Because it's in the vault. But if the vault goes away, then do I have to – is it only going to be available to stream on Disney Plus? Right. We don't I know. But I exactly. can't purchase it anywhere else if it's not available? Right. That's, that's exactly what to, the that, question. That's what I'm trying to figure out. No is, one knows. And so my, so, so my comment is I feel like that's what Disney Plus is going to do. It's basically going to inhale all of its properties and basically hoard them for anybody that's willing to pay the flat fee a month to have access to them. But if I want to be a digital owner of that particular movie – I won't get that because it's all sitting in this one place as opposed to maybe being available right now. I disagree. I do not think that's what will happen. I think they will still have plenty of availability for you to purchase and own their movies. Okay. That's because that makes them more money. Because if you just want to buy one movie like bed knobs and broomsticks or something for 20 bucks, you're not going to pay 10 bucks a month in order to watch that one movie. But you'll mm-hmm. pay 20 bucks to buy it, and it's all about the bottom line. Sure. I think this is all about streaming and access. Now, they don't need to get the people who want to buy physical copies to do this necessarily. No. It's the streaming folks. It's people like me. I will you – know, I mean I'm buying it no matter what. I guarantee you I'm subscribing to this because I enjoy all of their content. My concern is what it does do for Netflix and how much it takes away because we are starting to reach that saturation point in the world where there is so much content that it is more expensive than having cable. Like right now, Patrick, I have YouTube TV, which is my cable, and I'll just be honest and go through my my finances a bit here. So that's like about 40 something bucks a month, right? 43 bucks a month for my essentially my live cable because it gives me live sports gives me Disney Channel, I think. Actually, it gives me, you know, news channels, things Not like anymore. that. Not for long. <laughs> but um I get that's what I do for live TV. And that's what most of them are. You have PlayStation Plus, you have Hulu has a live TV service now. There's a bunch of them out there. Um mm-hmm. Sling TV, etc. Those are about 40 bucks a month for a good package. So 40 bucks a month for that. I pay like 13, 14 or something like that for Netflix. Then if I wanted to have Hulu, it'd be like 12 bucks. I wouldn't need that because I have live TV. So that's usually an either or thing. 
if you want, you know, non-live TV Hulu. Then I have Amazon Prime, which most of us, I think, have these days, has gotten more and more expensive. I'm about to renew my Amazon Prime in April. $119 is now the cost for Amazon Prime. It used to be like 75 bucks. So that's 119 bucks for Amazon's library of Prime content. And then on top of those, you have the announcement that Apple's coming out with a streaming content provider service, and mm-hmm. that they may be teaming up with someone. Um, I, I forgot who it was. I think it was Warner Brothers, maybe. I can't remember exactly who it was, but they were going to team up with someone. And then you have things like the Criterion Channel, uh, where Filmstruck used to be, so people who like classic movies. The thing is, there's so many different niche type of content providers that if you wanted to actually have access to all of them, you would be paying the same $150 to $200 a month for content as if you once did for you know, your cable package so this that is we all got mad about. Right, and this is a conversation that I have with a coworker of mine, and I tried to convince him when we were talking about – I use cable. So I have cable, and I have the big two streaming services, Netflix and Amazon Prime. I justify, like I think a lot of people, with Prime saying, hey, I get two-day shipping, and I buy a lot of stuff. So that offsets it. But let's let's not kid ourselves. We are we are Prime users because we like the fact that we get access to some good to great streaming content. And, you know, it's one of the four major platforms that Movies Anywhere gets us, um, which is another interesting question, but I don't want to get into that. But I was trying to convince him that of that same point that you were making, that the more streaming services that you add, you're essentially negating that cost effectiveness because you're essentially buying a la carte, but you're buying a la carte only in small pockets. It would be like me saying, okay, I just want ESPN and I want the Hallmark channel for my wife and I want the History channel for this and I need Disney. And this is essentially what we're getting, only we're getting it in bloated versions. We're getting, oh, you know, I like this show on CBS, so I have to get CBS All Access just for that one show. I like this particular show on Hulu, but I have to get Hulu in order to get that. And so you start justifying all the costs. And he said, well, I don't include, you know, if you were to make a, make a, uh, make a case, you don't include internet. And I'm like, yeah, you do because you need your internet service to do all of those things, to do all (laughs) those things. And he wasn't quite buying it. And I was like, okay, well, if we were still justifying that, I'm going to take away my internet. And right now with my bundle, if I were to split the internet down the middle, I'm still paying less than you are for your streaming services combined. Yes, I'm getting about 100 to 120 channels that I don't even watch. But the point is, I'm willing to pay the cost for the channels that I do get and have the DVR to be able to watch those things. Now, if we're going to be candid about things, the fact is, I see so much saturation happening that at some point, you're going to start seeing people just start torrenting movies and shows because of not only the availability, it's the truth. I mean, it absolutely is the truth because I don't, I see a lot of people who are like, I get, fr- they get frustrated with the fact that they can't watch the latest Star Trek TV series because it's on CBS All Access. They can't watch Cobra Kai because it's on YouTube Red. And it's, it's frustrating to the point where we get into those, those conversations about the fact that you want to be in the know about things that are being talked about and having the internet and having that access, you're willing to, a person is willing to go that extra mile and instead of you'll either pay for the get the free service for a month and then cancel it or you'll find alternative means to get that content so so then we start getting into a much much bigger problem debate yes, which is absolutely. which is the idea of having to do it all and where we ju- like you said when we justify our finances and how we do that and i know what you're saying i <laughs> get what you're doing at some point it's a matter of each person's individual ability to afford the things that they want. And it sucks because we do live in a culture where we are driven by so much media. Mm -hmm. And in order to consume it, like you said, it used to just be everybody wants to watch that show. Are you watching that show? Well, it's on cable. We all had cable. We all had access to that show. Sure. And it's just no longer like that. Mm -hmm. And so it does create that feeling in people of, I need to go spend money to do this, which can harm people financially mm-hmm. because they're trying to be part of that bigger conversation. So it's it's a struggle. And I think Disney Plus is going to add to that struggle because mm-hmm. so many people are going to want this service. 
well, and going to feel like they need it. So I don't want to be negative Nancy on Disney Plus. I think there is one bright spot, and you mentioned this oversaturation, but there's a quote from Roger Iger, Iger, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, but he's the CEO of Disney, and he says, we have the luxury of programming this product with programs from those brands or derived from those brands, the other brands that they own, which obviously creates demand, as you mentioned, Aaron, and gives us the ability to, and this is important, not necessarily be in the volume game, but to be in the quality game. To me, if that's not a dig at Netflix, I don't know what is, because that's been a big, big criticism of Netflix, is they pump out so much original content, and often it's at the expense of production value, that you'll get 10 new Netflix original TV series or movies a month, and 9 out of 10 of them are subjectively crap. Or that there's that one jewel in the dung of of Netflix stuff. And it may just happen to be a potential Oscar winner, which we'll get into maybe in a minute. Wow, I wonder but, where you're going. But I think that, that Agar has a point. There is so much established success with Marvel, with Star Wars. I mean, you've got instant loyalty in the brand itself between Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. You're going to have a built-in audience of people that, at the very least, are going to re-watch all of your stuff. That's gonna... the thing. All those properties are rewatchable. My coworker told me this exact thing. He said, do I want a service where I can watch a bunch of new stuff one time and have a very low percentage chance that I'm going to be blown away? Or do I want a service that has a ton of content that I already know I love that is ultimately rewatchable and I'm going to sit there and spam Aladdin, for example, like we just talked about every every week, just like I used to watch on VHS when I was a kid, once a week or twice a week. This, yeah, this is me. He described me. They are providing what the public has shown they desire. Yes. So people that are upset about it, I understand, but this is what the majority of the public has shown they want. It's a security and, blanket. It's a and, it's a pop culture security blanket. Yeah, and let them have it. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm excited for Disney Plus. I'm excited to see where it goes. If it forces Netflix to lower quantity in favor of quality in order to keep some more subscribers because people are going to start bailing, I'm all for that too. I'm sure people have done the numbers. I, I'd like to see some metrics here to see of the current content, and I know it's always shifting and moving around, but the current content that's on Netflix. What percentage is owned by a Disney-related property? That would be my question. I don't know that it's a I ton. I don't think that it's a ton. I really but, don't. But I wonder if there are other properties, not Netflix original, that occupy a majority of that space outside of the Disney-related properties. Yeah, I don't think so. I just think it's going to be a matter of families having to choose. If they have this Disney thing available they've never had before, mm -hmm. that can serve their needs and their kids' needs, then they may have to make those financial decisions where it's 15 bucks for Disney Plus or 15 bucks for Netflix. I think that's going to be where they lose sure. subscribers. Sure. I, I would agree with that. I think that, that you're on, on point there. And that leads into our, our next uh, point of pop culture uh, contention, I guess you could say. And in the news recently, Steven Spielberg, uh, claimed director, producer, writer, uh, was quoted as saying... With regards to Netflix, quote, once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. You certainly, if it's a good show, deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. I don't believe films that are just given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for the Academy Award nomination. So if you can't glean what he's talking about here, essentially, Steven Spielberg was critiquing, commenting, criticizing the fact that Netflix not only got nominated, but has won Oscars in in categories of theatrical means that do not need to be earned. And essentially what he's saying is, if you're not a true like theater distributing company, if you're not a Warner Brothers, if you're not a Sony Pictures, you really don't deserve to get an Oscar nomination. And... I'm reading this and I'm kind of torn, Aaron, because I kind of agree with them, but I kind of don't. The fact is, Netflix started out as a distribution company. You paid seven bucks a month and you got two DVDs, 
or whatever, and you kept them for as long as you want, you returned them, and you had a queue, and you get those things. Then they go streaming, and then they start making a mark on being a studio, starting to produce original content. And now we've got an Oscar-nominated film in Roma (laughs) that got a lot of buzz, was a highly touted film, got a Best Director win, Best Foreign Language Film win. And here we have Steven Spielberg, who is a veteran in the world of movie making, really saying that shouldn't be the case. I don't know that I completely agree with him. And I think it's part of the quote that I read that makes me kind of disagree with him. He says, I don't believe films that are just given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for the Academy Award nomination. I would agree with that. But the fact is, other studios have done that exact thing. You've gotten late game Oscar nominated films that show up in LA and New York for maybe a few weeks. They don't get a national theatrical release and then they go away and they're given multiple nominations. Nobody says a thing. But then you have a company like Netflix who began their growth as a distribution company is now starting to push out content. All of a sudden, that's not a good thing. That I may be misreading that quote. And so if I am, please correct me. But I don't agree with it. Well, you're misunderstanding what I think you may have seen. So you're correct that many films that are up for Oscars have run for a week or two and had a an Oscar qualifying theatrical run in order to do that in the end of December time frame. But those films have come out on wide release in January. Things that that happens almost every single year. We have that happen. And those are the big studio films. It is very, very rare. In fact, I can't think of many other cases where this happens from big studios. They're all indie. Maybe a few little indie studios have done it. Some of these films that we're covering where you'll see, you know, they're in theaters this week and then they come out on VOD, but they're still going to be in theaters for more than a week. Things like Your Name come to mind. I think Mm -hmm. that was one that did, but it was never even in the picture for the Oscars. This is really a new thing. And this is, I think, the heart of what Spielberg, his quote rubbed people wrong because it's snarky. Frankly, it's snarky. The way he said it sounded a lot worse, I think, than his words actually like the heart of what his words are trying to to in, convey. So what what Spielberg is saying is this. Netflix has gotten through a loophole in the process because by Academy rules, your film has to have a one-week qualifying run in theaters in L.A., New York, in order to qualify for the Oscars because those are the big markets, right? Netflix has been able to fulfill that by getting deals with smaller theaters that allow them to essentially it's a, it's kind of like a loophole they're they're fulfilling that requirement the problem is that the majority of studios out there all have agreements with theater chains that their movies are going to run for somewhere around 3 months before they're allowed to put it out on video demand because that's how the theaters know they're going to get their money back they have exclusive access netflix is getting around that by not giving the theater any exclusive access they're like here just play it for just let me pay you Play it for a week so we can quote unquote get our Oscar qualifying and then we're going to have exclusive access. So the theater really gets nothing out of this deal at all. You're cutting them out. And so the concern for Spielberg is that you're undercutting the idea of cinema. Ultimately, theaters, if, if more because and it's not because Netflix is doing it, he's forward thinking. And, and this is what he's been doing his entire career setting new standards for filmmaking. So he's thinking ahead to what happens, Patrick, just like 10 years ago before Netflix really was the thing and we had regular cable and now we're in this situation. What happens 10, 12, 20 years from now when there are Warner Brothers has a streaming service and realizes, you know what, I'll just have exclusive access at home and you can watch it at your home theater because it's too much, too expensive for me to put that movie out in a theater. Then theaters go away. That's okay. what he's worried about. Okay, and I and I, I get that from a directing standpoint. 
But this is the nature of who we are right now and the access that we have to content. The digital landscape that we live in right now has to be taken into account. So what, in my opinion, when it comes to an Oscar nomination or an Oscar win, I don't care that it's not in the theater. Of course, I'm not a director, but what, in what world, in what concept should a movie be made for the big screen in order to qualify it for an Oscar? I mean, should that even be the case? Does a quality of a movie's Oscar nomination depend on the fact that it's made for the big screen? Well, take into account HBO. HBO's been making movies forever. Hmm? They're considered TV movies because by the way that our media is currently labeled in the whatever the organization is that does that, it is considered a TV streaming service. Whether mm-hmm. you're watching it on your phone or your computer or not, it's still considered a TV streaming service, a web series streaming platform. Okay. Just like HBO. HBO's movies are Emmys. They're not Oscars because they're TV. Now, it's the land the landscape has changed, and I completely agree with you. I think the issue is that there is no black and white here. Spielberg is right. Something has to be done, and Netflix is every bit allowed to do what they're doing and should have their movies considered as well because some of the Netflix movies were made for theater. Annihilation. I mean, it had like a one-week run, but it got bought out. The same thing with the Cloverfield movie. It sucked. Cloverfield Paradox. But it was made to be in a theater, and it didn't work out, so it ended up on Netflix. So it's not like they didn't make it, you know, movies differently. I think that Netflix does need to be held accountable and has to play by the rules, but maybe we need to set new rules that govern and affect theaters and streaming services in a manner that everybody can accept is the problem. We need to get that on the table. There's There should be a unifying understanding and acceptance of what is considered nominatable. Because, for instance, you've got The Big Short. It was up for five Oscar nominations. Do you mean the big sick? No, the big big short. The big short. Yeah. The big short was up. I don't know if it won any. I can't remember, but it's a, it's a good movie. It's a really good movie, but you know what else is a good movie? And this is again, me being subjective too big to fail, which I think is a fantastic sequel unofficially to, to the big short because it helps paint a picture of the entire real estate crash that took place and how it affected everybody. And I thought, for my money, Too Big to Fail as a film was just as good as The Big Short. Wasn't nominated for anything. You know why? It was on HBO. It was an HBO original movie. When it comes down to it, I think that needs to be the starting point. What do you consider quality filmmaking? And, you know, if you're going to do this, look, the Golden Globes are a great example of the mess of types of awards that people get nominated and win. You know, best actor in a TV movie versus best actor in a musical or comedy versus. And so you have this mix mash of TV and film. What you're doing is you're appreciating quality storytelling and quality acting. Why not make the Oscars that same thing and start including your streaming services and don't delineate between the fact that, well, this is a streaming service movie, HBO or Netflix or Hulu or Amazon versus a non-streaming service like Warner Bros. Because the fact is, Disney Plus, they're going to, I guarantee you, they're going to come out with something that's going to blow people away on their platform, and it's going to have some kind of nominated juice in it. But this question is going to come up. Do you nominate a movie or something that comes off of Disney Plus? It's going to happen every year from now on. That's why I think the only answer, in my opinion, I think that they're both right. And I think there has to be an agreement, though, because Netflix has to play by the rules. Because otherwise, the theaters will lose, and cinema will start to fail as an art form the way that we know it, of going to the theater. So it's less a problem of what gets nominated for an award, in my opinion, and more an idea of how do we repackage and sell Hollywood and movie making in in general to the world so that both of these things can exist. Because they're going to both exist, or they're both going to exist no matter what. I don't think that the award show is the platform to be driving that change. I don't, no. that, that doesn't make sense to me. And that's where I disagree with him. I think it's, I think it's the result and I think it's the effect 
that happens, I think what should be driving this is quality storytelling. Because For awards, I 100% agree with you. And, and I think Netflix gets the bad rap because they have become – I think we joked about this last year. When the Cloverfield Paradox hit, hit Netflix and we're like, wait, what? Why did it – oh, that's why because it stinks. Well, now Netflix potentially has become the place where movies go to die. But that's not necessarily the case because Annihilation was really good. Or for you, it eventually was really good. <laughs> but – the fact is we've seen that Netflix can produce quality movies. The problem is they don't produce as much quality movies as they produce non-quality movies. But neither do other studios. And I that's agree. the fairness of it. You're right. Like we're, yeah. we can't hold them to some standard of of quantity. I agree. Because pff, look, Warner Brothers made Jurassic World. All right. You lose like that's like a minus 100 to your movie count right there. Right. But the fact is that Warner – Here's where I think the issue is. Maybe this is my own personal thing, but I think the fact is Netflix has not become a respected studio because of what they were before. Again, if Disney Plus comes out with something that blows people away in terms of a streaming film on their on their service, they're probably going to get more credibility because they're a studio first. They weren't a streaming service first. And because they have cred. I think that's what you're saying. So yes. Roma, Roma is a foreign film by people that – an auteur director that – is doing something that only film fans really understand and know. To some extent, that's what's going to happen with The Irishman later next this year. Sorry, the Martin Scorsese film. Same kind of concept. It's not necessarily a director that people come out in droves to see in the theater. Mm -hmm. Now, Disney, you put a Marvel movie there. Now, they're not going to do that because they need the theater bucks, yeah. right? But yeah, what if Lady and the Tramp's live action is really stellar? Then... That could cause some issues because that service is going to have people that see that and it's going to be the different side of the public. Yeah. There's an interesting quote by the, the, the can director, uh, Theory Fremo, and I may be pronouncing his name wrong. I apologize, but he says, in order for a film to become part of history, it must go through theaters, box office, the critics, the passion of cinephiles, award campaigns, books, directories, filmographies. All of this is part of the tradition on which the history of film is based. You're absolutely right. It is a part of a tradition on tradition. which the history yeah. – And that's exactly Keyword. where I leave it at the door. It is not part of the future. Right. Me and it should, not, it should not dictate what the future should be. That's someone who I believe is living in the past and who holds a really high value of his festival, which does have high value. And these festivals, I think, are still legitimate because they give people early access to things. Um, I think – what was it? The Hummingbird Project made its debut at a film festival before it eventually hits theaters. And I like that. But in some ways, these film festivals are kind of like a streaming service only for people that go see them because they're getting early access to movies that will eventually get some kind of distribution. And so I think when it comes to streaming services, whether or not you get a screener as a critic or not, you might be getting access to these things before or after or quickly uh, in line with when they actually get a theatrical release. And so I think that that kind of approach, I think, is not thinking logically about what the future holds. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. It's time to evolve is what's coming out of this. And when it comes to the awards process, as long as there is a standard that is met, that is everyone can be equally held to, I don't care. I'm fine with it. And right now, Netflix is technically meeting that quality and that's why they were nominated and so therefore i can stand behind netflix right now and say that's okay do i think that there needs to be bigger conversations about this yeah i do i really do think that the cinema is in danger of a coming decline as far as theater going and that that a lot of factors play into that not just the rise of streaming services but mm -hmm. cost cost of productions of movies you know that's why these studios are producing less movies. They're spending more of their money on bigger movies right. because those are the ones that bring in the bucks. Right. So we're getting less and less and less stuff that is new and original content, and that's moving to platforms like Netflix for lower cost because that's where people are willing to consume it. Yes. And so ultimately it is all driven by, guess what, me and you and our way we spend our dollars. Absolutely. And so – by that token, have some conversations about it. 
do what you can to save it. But ultimately, a film is defined for me by its runtime, and that's it. That's it, really. is It's a, a film with a certain runtime that is, I guess, over, what, 30, 40 minutes? Something yeah. like that, 45? I, I think 45 minutes, over 45 is, is feature film. Is where the break-off of a feature and a short film. And past that, there's really no other, where it is, to me, has no bearing on right. anything. Because ultimately, everyone has access to every film. For the, like, 99 percentile, it's a matter of whether you're willing to pay for that or not. So just like I may have access to see what one best picture? <laughs> I forgot. Green Book? Green Book. I might have access to see Green Book because my theater is playing it. I still have to spend my money to go do that. Right. Just like I would have to spend my money on Netflix subscription to see Roma. Yeah. So I I think that they should be eligible until further notice, until the policy changes. But if they want to work on a way to tighten up that policy and every movie can be held to that same standard still, then I'm fine with that too. And if you guys are listening, Stephen, I know you are a big fan of the podcast. So give us a call. We'll be part of the conversation if you need us. We can give you the level-headed audience, layman, whatever you want to call us, perspective on enjoying movies for what they are. And we're sorry for our review of the BFG. <laughs> well, that's all from us this week. We are glad you guys joined us on another episode of FF+. Plus. Coming up in just a few days, we are bringing you our thoughts on Jordan Peele's Us along with guest host Emmanuel Noisette and the newest member of the Feelin' Film team, Kales Davis. It'll be a pretty busy week after that, so tune in Monday to find out more of what's coming your way. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Phil, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.